creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. 2,000 acres of land untouched by man. The forest rings with the sounds of birds and the rivers are clear with the beauty of nature. You own this cut of the world. Not a human, building, or train in sight or earshot. Just the sound of fauna and the scents of flora and the feeling of Minnesota weather in the boundary waters. You spent so much time in this land, but you see the wonder and you think to yourself, what happens after I'm gone? What will happen to this land? Today on Culture Click, we speak with someone who had this story and gave that 2,000 acres of land away. Join us today as we speak with Mike Freed, better known as Loon. We'll hear his story and why he did it. Come learn the history of the Boundary Waters and of a northern loon on today's Culture Click. All right, so I'm currently joined in the studio by Loon, although that's not your real name, is it? No, that's my trail name. It's a secondary personality I took on after I retired. Well, uh... First things first, I know you have a letter that you wrote to the people of Minnesota, and I know I was supposed to receive it, but I didn't seem to get it in the mail. Would you mind uh, reiterating what is on that letter? Well, I made a gift to the people of Minnesota. I had hiked the Appalachian Trail, and I came to the end of the trail. This is all in the movie Loon. When I came to the end of the trail, there was a sign just before going up at, you're going up at dawn so you can get up the mountain and down. It's a 5,000 foot ascent, so you get up and down before dark. And it's a pretty hard climb, but you've been hiking for four to six months, so you're ready to ascend this big mountain. And at the bottom it said, man is born to die. His works are short-lived. Monuments crumble and decay. But Katahdin will remain in all its glory, the mountain of the people of Maine. So Governor Personal Percival Baxter had given this mountain to the people of Maine. Well, I had collected a lot of land up in the Boundary Waters area of Minnesota. And I said, well, this is land that the people of Minnesota deserve. I think I should donate this to the Nature Conservancy so that it can be kept in perpetuity for the people of Minnesota. Yes, and I know uh, you mentioned the film Loon, the short film that was about, I believe, 11 minutes. I don't believe everyone in our audience would have been able to see that film, which is why I'm doing a bit of background information for it. I do want to ask, why the name Loon? Well, Loon is the spirit of the north and the wild lakes that I grew up on in northern Minnesota. And I felt that Loon was captured the the spirit that uh, someone who wants to live six months in a tent and walk every day and, and get a little bit away from the matting crowd, far from the matting crowd, was a famous book in England, English literature. So people that do that <clears throat> take on a moniker and the Appalachian Trail names are funny to read, and <clears throat> you don't. People have an article in a paper, and they will give the name of the person because journalists always have to have the name and address and where you came from. But 
the most important thing on the trail is your trail name, and they leave that off of the article. So I don't know who they're talking about. If people <laughs> will know me on the trail as Loon, and they will have no idea that I was a college professor or that I had a name, Mike Freed, or that I was a different person. Well, then that it kind of goes into another question of mine. At what point do you think you really develop the idea of being Loon? Or would you say you were always Loon and you just never acknowledged it until that point? Well, it's a matter of going back into your childhood and finding the images that have driven you partially through your life, but you didn't know it because we live in a kind of a surficial world uh, of day-to-day -day cerebral thinking and trying to solve problems, or in my case, teaching every day and getting your notes together and appearing in front of classes and telling the history of parks or recreation or wildlands or forests. And to dip down into uh, an older frame of reference. And that's where I first found Loon again uh, as I matured. It became a touchstone of this is the childhood lakes I grew up on, uh, sandy bottoms, uh, beautiful rippled underwater with a lot of algae and sunfish, northern pikes, Loon. Those are the things that I remember from childhood that gave me a great deal of pleasure. So I became Loon. I guess that answers another question. You know, what inspired you to have such care for the environment? It would have to be that those childhood memories, yeah? Yes. I mean, I uh, in the letter to the people of Minnesota, they're the people who raised me, who educated me, who cared enough for me to send me out in the world with uh, some credentials and some training and uh, to be of service to others. And then... Years later, you come back to your own state and you give thanks for where you came from. I came from strong immigrant parents. My grandparents were immigrants, not my parents. So I was a third, fourth generation Scandinavian immigrant. And I was just thankful for the amazing education. We had a German principal in Hastings High School. And we had an Eastern European uh, head of the superintendent of schools. We had a German lady that was my German teacher, but she was also the high school administrator and all the teachers that uh, taught me. I mean, I had a wonderful and safe upbringing. I was very lucky. I knew all my grandparents. How many children today know all four of their grandparents? Some kids don't know either one of their parents or one parent raises them. And so you get detached and uh, from your past. I can say that I, I see that too. A lot of, uh, at least my generation, really can't say where they, where their family came from and what got them to where they are today. And of course, I'm no different. But it does become a point of fascination, like where did we come from and how does that make us who we are today and how can we make that to where we're going? But we, br we brought the area of the Boundary Waters to which you've uh, come to own and come to give to the people of Minnesota. Why... Did you give it away? You could have sold it for a good portion of money. Why didn't you? Well, I didn't want it to be disrupted. In the movie, I explained that someone will buy this property and they'll cut a road in and they'll put in a little cabin or they'll subdivide it. Realtors were hounding me to sell off parts of the property. And I didn't think that that was what I wanted to see as a future for these lakes. Now, there's six wild lakes. I was the only private owner on these lakes. So you can imagine.
imagine that you can make cabins. I could have built cabins on the edge of lakes for the rest of my life. And my children and I did build a handmade log cabin on the shore of Lake Superior on one of those subdivided lots that someone put in a, they bought Ole Scrafel's old piece of property. He was a Norwegian fisherman and they split it up into seven or 10 lots. And I ended up buying one of the lots and building a cabin with my children. So I could have done that probably for the rest of my life, but I felt that it needed to be kept in one piece, and that's what I did with it. Now, I did sell it to the Nature Conservancy for way below the market value of the property. Hmm. So I was able to get enough money to buy a little cabin nearby, near Duluth, Minnesota, north of Duluth, up in Brimson. So now I have a little cabin on the lake that's reminiscent of the wild properties that I gave to the people of the state of Minnesota. It's interesting that you mentioned Duluth because uh, I actually just did um, an interview a few weeks ago with the uh, producers of Freshwater, who also did a big focus on Duluth thanks to its location next to the Great Lakes. And, you know, part of what makes me interested about that area is the fact that there's the unknown of what there, what we don't know. That kind of uh, brings me to other questions, but before I get to those, I'd have to ask, is that log cabin you built still there today? Yes, it is. Do you have? I sold it to some other owners, and I haven't gone back. And now I own a cabin that was built by three generations of the Bislows out of two harbors. And they were a remarkable family. Grandpa bought this uh, one-acre piece with 100 foot of frontage on a small lake north of Duluth. And he, he got it from a surveyor who was paid by the mining and forestry companies with a piece of land. He said, I've been doing all this surveying for you. and You're making money on these trees, and uh, you're making money on the, the lands that I've surveyed, but you haven't paid me. So they gave him a big chunk of land on the south side of the lake, and he immediately subdivided it into 100-foot lots. <laughs> so Grandpa Bislow went down to the office and bought one of them. He was one of the first person. He bought it for $300. And he got back and sat on the edge of the lake, and he said, boy, that corner lot over there, that's two doors down. That's a good lot. I'm going to go get that one, too. And he went back, and all the lots had been sold in one day. There was a big land fervor in the 1800s, late 1800s. And, you know, Minnesota grew up with people on, on the edge of a lake in a little summer cabin. So he built a log cabin, and uh, his son uh, helped build it, and his grandson remembers living there with the, in the summers with Grandpa. So I kind of went back in time and uh, used the money to buy a little cabin on a lake. But the gift of 2,000 acres to the people of Minnesota was the most important part of the. I'm happy with just a little chunk so I can watch the loons come sit on under my dock, and the, the geese actually get up on the dock, and and uh, stand there and watch their kids from a little elevation. So, Right, and then that leads me to one of my, uh, I wouldn't say harder questions, but a question that uh, I think uh, would be important to ask. There are a lot of people like you who don't, who aren't a fan of the urban lifestyle, you know, the city, the, you know, I hear people talk about Winona and, or like where I come from, Owatonna, as these big cities, and, you know, I grew up in places like San Diego and family in Orlando and, and New York, so it's like, I, I, I see these big 
urban areas where there's a bunch of the mechanical modern day. And I know, my, as for myself, there's a lot of people who would love to have, like like you said, a log cabin by the by the waters and, you know, surrounded by all this nature and things and, and beauty that has been there for centuries before we have. And it begs the question, what would you say is that middle ground where all these people who want to have this beautiful nature around them or want to exist in this nature without all these people just moving into one place and therefore destroying the nature around it. Well, it's very interesting. A lot of people, the millennials and the Gen Xers and the young people coming up, all have this conundrum of how can I do this? Well, one way they can do it is do it together. But we tend to be a very individualistic society. And we want to have a little fort at the edge of the lake and build a wall around it and um, contend that this is ours. And I think nature is constructed under a different framework. And we're discovering so many new things about the, about the environment and about the universe. They found that uh, crows and wolves actually work together. Here is a cross-species behavioral connection where they the crows identify some of the prey where the elk are moving or where the moose are or where the baby deer are and they call him the wolf pack and the wolf use them as locators like crow, crows are drones for the uh, the wolf pack the wolves then will leave some of the meat on the carcass and will actually shred it so that the Ravens and crows can manage to eat it. If it was a big chunk of meat, they'd have to, it would be frozen shortly and it'd be hard for them to eat it. So they actually pre shred it for the crows. This is brand new research. And my suggestion to the young generation is the reason I'm doing this interview and the reason that I did a lot of these things is because the hope of saving this planet is up to the young people that are listening to this program and going to school down in Winona and trying to figure out how to, one, get out on the weekends and enjoy a wild nature, but how to live a organized and, and uh, cultured life in town. And then typically we go out to visit. That's the second thing that people have used as a strategy rather than to own or to own communally. And that's why recreation and outdoor activities are such a vital part of how the young generation views the world. The reason I wanted to do this interview is to talk about the storybirds. The storybirds are the two filmmakers that put together this film for the Nature Conservancy and then later made the slightly longer one for me. And they were on the dock of the lake at 5 a.m. in the morning, I'm crawling out of my tent. I'm supposed to meet these people that Nature Conservancy sent. And they drove all the way from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they're there at 5 a.m. And I'm not even up out of my tent yet. Haven't had my coffee. And they're filming. And they have this huge camera that you have to wear a backpack to carry. And then the, um, they have a drone. That, uh, that's the, the uh, bird. One of them operates the whirly bird, and one of them operates these big camera lenses. And uh, they get me out of a canoe and put this huge lens up against my face. And, you know, they say, oh, just don't 
just don't imagine it's there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, I'm scared to death of this huge camera right next to my nose. And uh, they spend two or three days with me canoeing around these wild lakes. And then they take pictures of them from with the drone, places that are extremely hard to get to. So they're very young people with young families, and yet they made a commitment to telling these stories. And with the film Loon, they won several awards at the Independent Film Association. So I traveled around with the film to tell this story about the storybirds, filmmaking and telling stories about the adventure of the outdoors is really an important contribution that the next generation can make. So I'm very proud of these young filmmakers, and I've really spent uh, the last couple of years of my life following them around where they show the film. The second point that they want to make in their filmmaking is what one person can do. Because I think uh, it was pointed out to me by Brock Bergsteth, who is writing a book called Wild Hope. And Wild Hope is the hope that we can save this planet, and the only people who are going to do it are the young people that are around us studying and working today, or adventuring, or spending time in the outdoors. Uh, if they don't take up the, the banner of understanding our natural world, you know, we're, we're going to lose it. So they have put together a series of stories about what one person can do, hence the name of the book, Wild Hope. It's not out yet. I've just completed a chapter in it. And it's what one person can do. There's so many wonderful stories about what happened around a campfire. And for people in Winona that are growing up or studying here, they don't know the story of Kenny Solway, the last great river rat. There's a paperback book called The Last River Rat. And he was a guy that lived on the bottomlands right across the river from you in Winona. It was up a little, upriver a little at uh, near Alma. But if you look at a map of the Mississippi, you see there are great sets of kind of islands and peninsulas and swamps that get flooded on the Wisconsin side. So you go up the Great River Road, and there's a wild wing store there, and Kenny comes in sometime. And the game warden said, Kenny, I've chased you around these bottomlands, and I know you've got a, an out-of-season deer or a beaver skin underneath the, the house that you shoved in when, when I came up the road. So you've been dodging me all your life, trying to escape me, the game warden, and I've been chasing you and watching you. And uh, you know that, and I know that. But I need some help, and you're the only person who can do this. I want you to go in the school and show these kids what's out in this woodland. And it's a woodland, but it floods seasonally. And nobody lives down there because it's, um, it's amazing what one person can do if they dedicate their lives to helping research and take care of this natural world. And so he said, I can't do that. I'm not going in and talk to kids in the school. He said, Kenny, you know, you want me to excite you for all these things, or are you going to help me out? You've been taking, taking, taking from the wild all these years. It's time for you to give something back. And Kenny Solway spent the rest of his life educating others about the Mississippi bottomland. And it's what one person can do right across the river from you and Winona. It's amazing what one person can do if they 
dedicate their lives to helping research and take care of this natural world. And that's the end of part one of The Northern Loon. Tune in next week for part two. Thanks to Mike Freed for agreeing to be on today's Culture Click. To keep up with all things Winona and the surrounding community, tune in to Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here at 89.5 KQAL. I'm Giovanni Bermudez. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click.